National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. A Supreme Court case argued last week could have significant implications for a decade-long religious liberty battle fought by the Little Sisters of the Poor. This case is Loper Bright Enterprises versus Gina Raimundo, which challenges the authority of the federal administrative state to dictate certain rules and regulations related to federal law. Beckett Laws President and CEO Mark Rienzi joins us today to explain why the seemingly technical case could be one of the most important cases of the term. Then we highlight pro-life marches from coast to coast with EWTN News contributor Catherine Hadrill. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and Catholic News Agency, and your host here on Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, who is EWTN News' Vice President and Editorial Director. So on January 17th, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Loper Bright Enterprises versus Gina Raimundo. As I mentioned, this case is, is a challenge to the federal administrative state. Uh, that wants to dictate certain rules and regulations related to federal law. It seems to be a technical case, um, but it could have great implications, far-reaching implications for the rights of religious organizations and churches. So here to help us understand this, we're joined by Mark Rienze, President and CEO of Beckett Law. Hi, Mark. Hi, Jeanette. Hey, Matthew. How are you doing? Very well, and this is, is quite a case that um, it, it could baffle, baffle the mind for some of our listeners. Why are we interested? Why are we Catholics interested in this case? As I understand it, it involves uh, herring fishermen <laughs> and, uh, and their desire not to pay for the cost of federal inspectors on their boats. Uh, so can you give us a little bit of an overview of, of this case that has already now made its way to the Supreme Court? Sure, and it'll take uh, 30 seconds of history, but I, I promise you it'll be, uh, it'll be worth it. So the case is about a doctrine called Chevron deference, which is basically a rule that says the federal judges should defer to federal bureaucrats about the meaning of the law, about what the law means. Then um, you might wonder, like, why, why should we care about that? Why does a religious liberty lawyer care about that? Well, over the past uh, several decades, what we've seen over and over again is that the biggest threats to religious liberty often come from not legislatures, where, you know, the representatives are voted for and they have more public accountability. Um, the threats don't often come from the legislatures. They often come from bureaucrats, from administrative agencies that decide that some other value is more important than your ability to practice your religion. And so if you, if you map it out over the past 60 or 70 years, you see a really big spike in religious liberty conflicts, and people probably notice them from their uh, just from reading the headlines, the Little Sisters of the Poor fight, Hobby Lobby, Masterpiece Cake Shop, all of these things come from administrative agencies. And so today the court, I'm sorry, last week the court was thinking about um, what are the restrictions on administrative law and how free should agencies be to make the law uh, as they go. And that's really the question, and that's why it, it has a big impact on religious people and religious groups. So what we're talking about here is the deference. And, and so if that deference is eliminated, so the deference that uh, 
that is given to these federal federal agencies. How do you see the balance of power uh, shifting amongst the branches of government? Does it cause a shift? Is it, or, or, or is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, it, it certainly could be viewed as a as a shift or sort of a reversion to the way law is supposed to be made. Um, what it should be is that if we're ever going to have something like the contraceptive mandate, the thing that mm-hmm. has dragged the little sisters into court for, for more than a decade now, um, it ought to be because our elected representatives have decided that they ought to have such a law. But the truth is, our elected representatives in the United States never decided to enact a contraceptive mandate at all. Just unelected bureaucrats in the agencies decided that we should have one. And what that means is that we we end up on sort of an endless back-and-forth cycle because Congress didn't pass a law that created this thing. It's just a back-and-forth cycle depending on which party's in power, and the law flip-flops back and forth. And so you get, frankly, dumb situations like the little sisters of the poor having to be in court for more than a decade because, of course, we have elections every few years, and, of course, different parties win over time. Uh, But what that means is that the law flips back and forth because... There's no clear law. It's just whoever's policy. And it's just, it's no way to run a railroad, no way to run a government. It's bad for religion and religious liberty. So this case uh, seemingly involving fishermen uh, would appear to be somewhat removed from religious liberty and the rights of churches. But as, as you note, a closer look at the Chevron doctrine does seem to raise questions of whether there have been cases where agencies have abused the power through this deference against religious believers. What are some, you cited a few, but what are we looking at here in terms of real threats to religious believers? Yeah, what we're looking at is really uh, all different kinds of places where the government tries to impose regulations to tell you who you can hire, to tell you what benefits you have to provide to people. All the kinds of things that, that we're used to seeing end up in court are often done by agencies. And so at the oral argument at the Supreme Court over the case, the Little Sisters of the Poor came up by name uh, because the lawyer for the fishermen pointed out that, you know, if you want to know how badly this can affect people, go take a look at the Little Sisters of the Poor case over the past decade. So whenever the agencies have the ability to just make up whatever law they want, and when they have the freedom removed from political accountability, um, where they can just decide what to impose and they can say, well, I care about some other value more then I care about your religion, um, that's going to impose costs and harms. And it's, it's just not the way our system was actually set up to run. Um, and so it's, it's just important to rein in the agencies so that they're not making up the law that way. The courts actually enforce the laws that have been written, and that they do it, of course, with respect for the Constitution and religious rights of people. So the fact that this is coming up now, I mean, this is a 40, the Chevron uh, doctrine is a 40-year-old law. Um, it's the fact that this is coming up now, you mentioned some of the cases that Beckett has won at the Supreme Court as you've pushed back against some of these um, government regulations. Why do you think it is coming up now? Why why do we have this opportunity now? Because as I understand it, the Supreme Court has refused to hear some of the cases that were um, brought bef- or petitioned to them in, in the past. So why now? Sure, that's that's the kind of question that there's only nine people who know the answer to. That's, uh, <laughs> in court justices, um, they get to control their docket and what cases they hear. Um, I suspect part of the reason they're doing it now is that the problems are arising more and more, and that their job is to look out at the federal courts and try to 
bring order and make sure we have the right rules in place. And so I suspect they're looking out at the, the mess and the conflict in the federal courts and saying, this is not the right way to be deciding these cases. This is not how we should do it. And they're trying to clean up a mess in the federal courts. And that's, that is their job. So the Little Sisters did uh, have a Friends of the Court, um, an amicus briefing on this case. Who are some other people who are watching this case uh, who who believe it it really could have uh, an important impact on the future of religious liberty? Oh, there's there's a lot of other groups that filed. I actually don't have the the list in front of me of all the briefs, but there are dozens and dozens of briefs uh, explaining all the difficulties of the administrative state Generally, for, for generally for anybody who cares about liberty, but particularly for people who care about religion and religious liberty, one of the things Justice Gorsuch pointed out at the argument was that this rule essentially um, puts a thumb on the scale in favor of the government and in favor of regulators. And so he was pointing out how it hurts the the disability claimant into social seeking social security benefits, and it hurts other. Um, you know, sort of smaller players who aren't as big as the Goliath of the federal mm-hmm. government who they're going against, but then they go into court and the courts tend to defer and favor the federal government. So um, there's a broad array of, of groups that filed, uh, you know, on the same side as the Little Sisters in this case. Absolutely, and uh, we should note that the Biden administration uh, has has said that overturning of this uh, deference uh, could be you know, a, a colossal shift <laughs> in the way um, our legal system works. So obviously they are not on the side of the Little Sisters of the Poor in this case. Um, Mark, what what could we expect? I, I mean, here I am asking you what the nine justices <laughs> uh, are, would, would, you know, would be deciding. But what what do you expect in this case? Yeah, it, it's always tough to tell and tough to predict. But I think the justices had, you know, a really long, it went on for several hours, a really long and thorough airing of all the problems with administrative deference, all the ways in which it doesn't fit well with the rest of our constitutional structure. So I don't know exactly what they'll do about it, but I think it's really good that they're sitting there focusing on the problem, and they granted the case in order to focus on the problem. So uh, I'm at least hopeful that they will they will do something to rein in the, the power of the administrative state, and, and again, get us back to the place where we can understand the laws are written, we know who wrote them, we can vote them out if we don't like them. That's, that's the way the system's actually supposed to operate. Absolutely. Well, Catholic News Agency and the National Catholic Register are following and uh, reporting on these cases, so our listeners can go to ncregister.com to, to read more about this. But, Mark, while I have you, and, and you are president of uh, Beckett, so I, I want to talk about um, the new 2023 Religious Freedom Index, the survey on uh, religion um, and religious freedom. Uh, what, what, did you, what did you find this year in this uh, particular survey that came out just this week? Thank you for asking, because I love to talk about the Religious Freedom Index. Um, it was actually a great year in our survey for religion and religious liberty. Uh, we saw a lot of increases in the general public view of, of both religion and religious liberty. But let me give you a, a handful of highlights that came through in the, in the survey. One of the things that we saw over and over again um, was a strong rise in the view of parental rights. I think more and more people are concerned about and uh, willing to stand up and fight for the rights of parents, particularly when it comes to things like the education of their children. Um, 
So here's just one example um, on on whether parents should be allowed to object to policies in schools that force children to use a particular pronoun um, if if somebody has said that they've they've switched their gender um, and the and the school district wants to force everybody there to say a certain pronoun. Uh, back in 2021, only 46 percent of respondents opposed such policies. But in 2023, 58% of people opposed those policies. Um, and, and on another one on parental rights, 67% of parents agreed that, uh, of, of, of Americans agreed, that parents ought to be able to opt their children out of, of con- school content that the parents find morally objectionable. So one of the things I think it's showing is that Americans, uh, particularly post-COVID, um, are more and more attuned to the rights of parents uh, as it relates to the education of their children. I think they're a little bit more skeptical of what goes on in schools, and they're more uh, more firm in their commitment to the fact that parents really ought to be the ones who have the first right to raise their children, not the government. It's all very promising, uh, both this this case that we're following, but also uh, what the index has found. And I'm always appreciative, EWTN is always appreciative, Mark, uh, for the work of Beckett. Uh, So thank you for being with us today, and I invite our listeners to go uh, to BeckettLaw.org for more information. Thank you. When we come back, we'll get highlights from the March for Life from EWTN News contributor Catherine Hadro. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. For nearly a century, the National Catholic Register has been moving minds, moving hearts, moving souls, and enriching our readers' lives by spreading the truth of the gospel. Today, that tradition continues with award-winning journalism that goes beyond any secular news service while bringing much-needed light and clarity to the issues and events that affect you and your family's future, all with faithful and courageous reporting guided by the teachings of the Catholic Church. It's more important than ever to join Catholics who depend on the register. Get six free issues today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and Catholic News Agency. I'm joined here on Register Radio by my co-host Matthew Bunsen, EWTN News' Vice President. And this year's March for Life happened on January 19th, uh, on Friday. It marked the second since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, ending 49 years of nationwide legalized abortion. And of course, this year's march took place in a political climate that is is very challenging for the pro-life cause. Uh, and we've seen this shift in some ways from the national front to the state front. And here to talk about uh, uh, about that shift and about the marches, not only the March for Life in Washington, but uh, the events taking place in San Francisco and Los Angeles, is Catherine Hadro, who 
is EWTN News's con a, a contributor for EWTN News and, of course, was the original host of Pro-Life Weekly. So, Catherine, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me during this busy pro-life week. It is a busy week, and, and you have reported from the field for the March for Life in, in Washington. And as I mentioned, this is a, a year, continues to be, mm -hmm. a, you know, another year of transition in the pro-life movement. Uh, we have seen life winning in the courts. You know, we, we have d defeated Roe vs. Wade. Um, through the Dobbs decision, uh, but it's been a rough year for the mm -hmm. pro-life movement. How how are we adjusting? Well, I think you really set that up well, Jeanette, because last year at the March for Life, it was the first time we all came together as a movement since the reversal of Roe, since the Dobbs Supreme Court decision this year, when we all gather together in Washington, D.C. I mean, it's a sobering time for the pro-life movement. Like you said, we're winning in the courts, but we're obviously losing the culture. There have been seven consecutive state losses when it comes to these uh, abortion ballot initiatives. So this is a time in the pro-life movement and the March for Life comes amidst this as the movement is really grappling with next steps, with strategy, we are, you know, in the beginning of a political year, a presidential election, so things are going to continue to become more political. Um, it's it's a sobering time in the movement, but the March for Life, it's always this battery charger event <laughs> for pro-lifers who travel, you know, across the country to come together. But it's also this reunion where I think and, and I trust that there have been these conversations where leaders and people who are in the grassroots coming together to really wrestle and grapple with next steps and how we continue to communicate that message. I do think this year's March for Life theme is very effective and really gets at the heart of what we need to be communicating. It's the 51st March for Life. And the theme this year was with every woman for every child. And the organizers chose that theme because they wanted to focus in on the need to care for both mother and child during, the, yes, the nine months of pregnancy, but also in the years after. So it's really been this opportunity this March for Life to spotlight the pro-life pregnancy resource centers who, yes, we are talking the talk, but we're walking the walk as well. And that is so evident in these heroes who work at these pregnancy centers. Previously, the, the march would end in D.C. at the Supreme Court. That's now changed, hasn't it? And what does it tell us about where the movement is and where our strategic mm -hmm. vision is? Yes, that was a slight adjustment uh, since last year they changed it. It would always end at the Supreme Court because, of course, the March for Life started as a protest of Roe v. Wade. Well, now that Roe is overturned, the marcher organizers have made it where the march goes through the streets of Washington, D.C., and now ends basically halfway uh, between the Supreme Court and Capitol Hill so that we can continue to be a witness to our lawmakers here in D.C., both pro-life and pro-abortion lawmakers, and continue to remind them to be advocating for life. I also... I also wanted to ask you about uh, an event that ta that happens all the time at the March for Life, but it, it, this year the Sisters of Life and the Knights of Columbus uh, kind of combined forces um, for Life Fest, and I think this speaks to what you were talking about about trying to 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 pull back the culture. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. What happened at Life Fest? 
Yes. So this is the second year that this Life Fest event has happened, and it's taking took place at the D.C. Armory. So people may be familiar. Maybe listeners have even gone themselves to what was then the Verizon Center in Washington, D.C., and the Archdiocese would um, put on an event. Now, a lot of people may know this. Most dioceses and archdioceses across the country have you know, adjusted how, you know, their involvement with the March for Life now that it's back at the state level. That being said, the Sisters of Life Knights of Columbus have come together with this very early Friday morning event um, that features (laughs) speakers and music, lively, beautiful music. Um, You know, Sarah Kroger was the musician featured this year. There's personal testimonies. There's Eucharistic healing process. And also very notably this year, uh, relics from the recently beatified Olma family. And so this is especially relevant for the pro-life cause because the mother of this, this whole family was beatified. Um, The mother of this family, Victoria Olma, she was very advanced in her pregnancy with her seventh child and her child was actually born while she was executed and that child was also beatified. And for the record, executed by the Nazis in World War II. Yes. And this is a very recent beatification in our church, which we're celebrating. And again, what a powerful tie for us this week. Absolutely. It really is a, a beautiful tie. I've, I've, I have not had the privilege of, of being able to pray um, before those uh, relics of the Alma family, but there are definitely staff members um, from our team who have, have had these relics at their parish or, or like you said, here at, at that Life Fest uh, where so many people will be able to pray uh, for life um, by such a wonderful witness uh, for life, and and just mm-hmm. to know that our churches join together in this in this witness for those who can't be at uh, uh, an event like the March for Life, there are events happening at, in many state levels. Um, I I know I just attended an event. Louisiana Right to Life had their gala. Uh, it was an opportunity both to pray together, but also, as you said, to to be reunited for the cause. That's what, mm-hmm. in part, these events do. Um, so w- we're talking about the March for Life, but um, happening today are, are also the Walk for Life. So on uh, the uh, 20th is the March for Life, as well as One Life L.A., Um, And both of these events are in California, a place that uh, we know (laughs) needs a lot of of prayer for life. It's it's a challenging moment in California, Mm -hmm. uh, Catherine, and you know this quite well. Mm -hmm. Yes. No, today's really exciting because the Walk for Life West Coast in San Francisco, they are celebrating 20 years of the Walk for Life, and they provide such a powerful witness. And One Life LA, this is their 10th year since they started down in Los Angeles. Uh, Two simultaneous events, you know, again, California massive state. So lots of opportunity for people to participate. But yes, in the fall of 2022, I had really this unique opportunity and privilege to serve as the spokesperson and director of media relations for California's No on Prop 1 campaign. So Prop 1, which unfortunately did pass in the the midterm that year, um, was a late-term abortion ballot. So late-term abortion is legal in the state of California. But California is so unique because Well, assisted suicide is also legal there. California has, in the Los Angeles area in particular, the largest amount of foster care children and also very high incarceration rates. And it is a corridor corridor for human trafficking. 
So to see the pro-life movement there, um, they know they need to address all of these things. They see how all of this is so connected, the culture of death. And I really am edified by pro-lifers who are in California because in speaking with them, we've all heard you know, all the mass exodus of people who left California a few years back, right? But there are people pro-lifers and the faithful in California who feel called to stay and to be witnesses because they don't want to let their beautiful state be totally overtaken by this culture of death. So really the the heroes um, of the Walk for Life West Coast and One Life LA, I've had the privilege of going to the Walk for Life before. And uh, just to see this vibrant pro-life movement, it's also a lot warmer there than it is in D.C. <laughs> and oftentimes these are people who are so dedicated to the cause, but for whatever reason, you know, maybe can't make it out to Washington, D.C. for the March for Life. And so it's really important, um, this continuing legacy of the Walk for Life West Coast. And then, again, One Life L.A. is organized by the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, and they do I, – I really think so highly of um, – the office there and the archdiocese, I think they have a very prophetic vision for what is needed in the pro-life movement. And One Life LA is really this celebration. Um, You know, there's music, again, there's food trucks, there's entertainment, there's inspiring speakers. It's very open to anyone who wants to participate. Something that's unique to One Life LA Um, You won't see in the signage the term pro-life, and I I think that's pretty intentional because they don't want to be – they don't want to exclude anyone who maybe they're not comfortable, you know, using – using that um, title or phrase for themselves. But One Life LA is this witness and really re-educating people about what a culture of life looks like. And so they partner with all these organizations to provide support for pregnant women, but also for immigrants and refugees, for the homeless, for the elderly, for people who are disabled and beyond. Um, And again, I think something very unique to the culture of of California um, and a reminder that uh, we need those pro-life heroes at the state level. Absolutely, and I'll I'll make note of uh, of some information we've been we've been following at the very first. You, you mentioned twenty years for the Walk for Life. The very mm-hmm. first Walk for Life, there was a counter rally with some familiar vo- uh, voices. Uh, mayor Gavin Newsom, uh, then San Francisco's uh, mayor Kamala Harris, and the entire board of supervisors. You know, they held this this counter rally, and now look at where they are today. So, the the voice of California and these pro lifers is very, very needed. Uh, Catherine, uh, you and the team have done such a great job in in covering the march and and, and leading EWTN's uh, coverage. Uh, I want to point our listeners uh, to EWTN for the Walk for Life coverage at 2.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, as well as One Life coverage 5 p.m. Eastern and pro-life mass at the Los Angeles uh, Cathedral there at 8 p.m. Eastern, all of this at EWTN. So thanks so much, Catherine, for being with us today and Matthew in studio. Thank you so much. God bless you. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, to check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. As always, thanks for joining us on Register Radio here on EWTN. Together with Matthew Bunsen and today's producer, Ace McKay, I'm Jeanette DeMello, and I pray until next week, may God bless you.